If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by visiting chriscarl.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find links to both Patreon and PayPal, where you can make donations. Any and all support is massively appreciated, and a huge thank you to everyone that has supported thus far. probably brought this up on the podcast about 50,000 times at this point but generally speaking I take the month of January off from my day job from being a wedding photographer from from being a portrait photographer and I actually fly to New York for four or five days uh, it tends to be on my own um, although last year my wife managed to hijack the trip a little bit and I just walk around with a camera I find New York to be one of the most fascinating cities in the world it never gets old you can see the same view a thousand times and always find something new within it um, it's probably the most alive city in terms of culture and and the mixing of different backgrounds and and different class systems and everything. It's just it's a wonderful place, and that's not even to start with the food. But before we talk about New York, and and I'm very much excited about talking about quite a few different subjects on this one. Let's start off with uh, what made you want to be a photographer in the first place. What made you pick up a camera? What made me pick up a camera? I mean, uh, it, and I think my you know, picking up a camera isn't unique to to me. I mean, it happened when I was little and, or younger, I should say, and just wanted to document what was going on around me. And so that meant, uh, you know, when we're in high school and middle school was a little bit before digital cameras. So I would have the uh, disposable camera and I would take photos with that. Or we had a little, I remember my family had this um, small point and shoot. It was like purple but it had a really big uh, aperture on it. I remember it was like a 2.8 or something like that. And I would, uh, I would just snap photos on that. Not really thinking, not really thinking much about it. Just that I'm hanging out with my friends, take a picture. I'm hanging out with my family, take a, take a photo. Um, and it just kind of went on from that. But what's, what's funny is that, I don't think I got necessarily serious about photography until probably uh, maybe 10 years ago. It was always something that I was just kind of doing in the background of my everyday job um, or school or something like that. And I want to say over the last 10 years or so, it's become more and more a part of you know who I, who I am. Well, I just picked it up just to just to document my just to document what was going on around me. Well, you mentioned before we started that you're not a, a native New Yorker. So, what what drew you in that direction, other than all of the things I listed at the beginning? A job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that really was that really was it. You know, it's it's funny. There is a, and maybe it's just me, but I felt like there was a weird tension between or is a weird tension between Philadelphia and New York and Philadelphia and Washington, DC or Baltimore and Philadelphia and Boston. It's this weird kind of thing that goes on. And so moving to New York was never something that I aspired to. I thought I would come up here to visit um, and always thought, and eh, eh, Philly is better. Who cares about, about, uh, about New York. But uh, then one day, a news company up here said, you want a job? And I said, of course I do. I love New York. Why not? And, and I moved up here for that and came to Brooklyn and fell in love immediately with the history 
with the culture, with the people. Uh, Brooklyn, or yeah, Brooklyn, specifically Brooklyn in particular, is a very, uh, it's a city in itself. I mean, the neighborhoods here, you know, I live in, uh, in Bed-Stuy, but Bed-Stuy is totally different than Bath Beach, for instance, or uh, Sheepset Bay or Bay Ridge. Like these are two, these are almost worlds apart, but they're still in the same neighborhood. And the people that are from those neighborhoods are incredibly proud, proud of being from the neighborhood. So it's something that you pick up on right away. And it's something that you kind of want to dive into and kind of be, be a part of, at least, at least I did. Cause I kind of felt like Philly was the same way as a city of neighborhoods that people are really proud to be from. Well, I feel like with New York, having visited a few times now, every time I come back, I find something that I haven't seen before or. It feels like uh, almost there's a collective awareness that you're not just on your first visit and people start being a bit more uh, helpful in terms of telling you about cool locations or spots to go and eat or, or whatever. And you almost have to earn your your New Yorker's visitor's badge where you get like the better access than the first time you come over. In, in terms of photography, from the point of view of when you first went there as, let's say, a visitor, and, and now you've become, I guess more of a local in the way you've got to know the area how different is it to photograph and and get to know the area that way that's a good question um i i think the biggest i think one of the 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 biggest changes um i'm just i'm thinking of some of the first times that i came uh, came to new york and i remember wanting to go down to go see, I came here on a, on a class trip, I think for high school, uh, or was for high school one time. And we went down to go see the, the trade centers. And I just remember, uh, the, the, the difference, you know, then as opposed to now it was New York is just a, a place that I guess is, is always changing. I feel like at that time, I hope I'm answering this question the right way. The, at that time, I was just trying to like, take some photos of whatever was going on, not really thinking much of it, uh, not really thinking much about it. And I feel like, you know, fast forward to now as a person who's living here, mm-hmm. um, I think I want to make sure that I, I, I take a photo of this or I'm documenting this because I don't, who knows if this is going to be here in five years or, or 10 years. As a matter of fact, that is something that I did for Barclays Center. Barclays Center in, in downtown Brooklyn it's built on train yards uh, and it's actually the spot where the Brooklyn Dodgers wanted to move to and the city said no. So then they went to LA. So I remember that was a, I covered that, that whole thing for a very long time. It was at least five or six years um, or about five or six years. And I remember taking some photos and thinking I need to take these pictures because there was going to be a huge stadium, whether the people, <laughs> Whether the people want it or not, there's yeah. going to be a basketball. There's going to be a basketball stadium here, and these train yards aren't going to exist anymore. So I made sure that I got the. I, I was intentional about getting this angle, getting that angle, getting this angle, and just getting what I know will be a totally changed landscape. Come, you know, a few years from now. Well, the, the city's certainly alive in terms of all five boroughs are not the biggest spaces, especially by comparison to a lot of the United States. All five, all five um, 
is it counties? I always get this confused, like Queens, Brooklyn. Are they counties? Boroughs. Yeah, so it's, it's boroughs, boroughs, yeah. I do apologize. That's that's me being English and completely getting it wrong. But it, but it's not even, it's, it's not your fault because I live in Brooklyn, which is the which is a borough. Mm-hmm. However, when you go to mark it down like official paperwork, it's in Kings County. And Queens is also in Queens County. But I think Manhattan is New York County. So it's it's a little, uh, it's a little confusing. So I can understand if someone is a little confused by the counties and the, and the boroughs, but it is five boroughs. Well, based on how badly planned out that idea of managing different areas of land, it does definitely sound like it's somewhere that the English landed um, <laughs> because we tend to have the same problem here and we're thousands of years old. The, the city's small and, and, and all those areas are quite small for the number of people that are living there. I always get the impression that Manhattan's about to teeter over the edge of how many people can sort of fit in the space that they've got. Mm-hmm. And, and in that sense, the, the architecture is always changing. I mean, I don't think I've ever been to New York and not seen just an enormous amount of work being done to buildings, to, to roadways and mm-hmm. so on. That just seems to be part of, the, of the, the landscape at that point. You just see construction crews everywhere. There is a reputation with New York, though, for, um, and this is obviously coming from an Englishman, that it's, uh, a lot of people don't have a lot of time for each other. That there's a there's almost mm. a rushed sort of state to to being in New York. That you you don't want to be bothered by people. You don't want to interact with people. It's almost a coldness to the way that people interact. Which, having been there a mm-hmm. few times, I I don't see being as big of a thing as what it's made out to be. I actually see the same thing in in London as I see in New York, which is just people just don't have time for stuff that is very obviously bullshit and that is just a waste of their time. Right. You you approach people, it seems, quite often to take their portrait with a lot of, you know, with a lot of success, it would appear from the outside. So what's the secret to approaching people in a city like New York to take their portrait? <laughs> uh, I wish I had, I wish I had the secret. Um, <laughs> it really is. There is, is never not awkward i'll put it that way uh to ask someone to ask someone for a photo um but the weird thing is and just like you said where new york has this 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 i don't know persona or new yorkers have this persona as being you know quick out of my way this and that that can be that is is so far from the truth new yorkers are incredibly kind and incredibly nice Willing to stop. If you need directions, you're asking them a question or something like that. Most of the time, we will stop and and, and at least engage you to find out whether or not you're, you're telling us bullshit. Mm-hmm. So to stop somebody is not really, uh, is not much of a problem. I just kind of go up to them and say, you look fantastic. May I take your portrait? And for the most part, they'll say, yes. What I have noticed over the years, though, is that people don't need as much direction as they used to. <laughs> uh, okay. I get sometimes like I'll, I'll ask, you know, a few years ago I would ask someone for a portrait and they would be, they would be like, but what's it for? Where's it going? They would have a few questions about, about it. And then kind of like, oh, okay, I guess whatever. And then ask, you know, how should I pose? Uh, now I'll ask somebody, sometimes they don't even ask why I'm doing They'll just say, okay, they'll pose. I'll take the photo and then go on about, about their day. It's really, it's really amazing how, how much things that help, how aware people are or camera ready. I don't know if it's camera ready is the right word, but, but people are 
ready to go. Like when you ask for a portrait, sometimes people are like, absolutely. And take it and then kind of go on about their day. Do you think that's a product of social media? I think it is a product of uh, the accessibility of camera phones. I don't necessarily know if it's if it's social media or not. I don't want to be the person that blames social media for the apocalypse, <laughs> which it will probably be responsible for. <laughs> but but I think people are people speak people know the language of cameras now and know the and know how they look much more than you know I ever did as a teenager. Um, or even as or even as, a, as a younger adult, um, so I think that they are just camera ready and camera literate, where they'll say fine, whatever. And and you know the the accessibility to cameras has made uh, photography a little bit more disposable, so people aren't holding on to to their image as as much as maybe they would have before. Right. Even though people, even though with with the internet, people are much more aware of of their image. I don't think they are holding on to it as much as they may in the past. You know, I think it might be creepy. If someone had your picture, say in 1995, someone took your photo and then they had it in their portfolio somewhere. I think somebody might be like, Oh man, why do you have my picture here? For what are you doing that for? Yeah. And today, you know what? No one would care. Like you, you know, your picture is in someone's portfolio. Eh, do they care? Not so much. It definitely feels like, uh, I mean, I, I am someone that blames social media for pretty much everything that's ever happened ever since about <laughs> 2006. But um, it definitely feels like people are, you said camera ready. I feel like a lot of people are fame ready. Like they're yes. living like a celebrity lifestyle in in the sense of wanting to be very in control of the way that they're documented um, and in control mm-hmm. of the narrative that's around them. And something I've noticed from the point of view of being a wedding photographer is that and this is entirely on me. This is, this is very much a self-judgment. I get very professionally spiteful when someone's way too happy being photographed. <laughs> I, get, I get a little bit like I almost don't want to give them the satisfaction, <laughs> which is a completely ridiculous point of view to be in. Right, right. Having, like you said, these, you've got people that just literally jump straight into a pose. Does sometimes, does that, does that take away from what you're trying to do with, with your photography? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't think so. Um, I try to, to get, I think I try to get people as, as, you know, as I ask them and and they pose, I don't know if, and I, and I'm hoping I'm not, I'm not taking the mystery or taking the magic away from some of the photos I take, but I really just see someone who I think would make a good photograph, whether it's their pose that they give me or I kind of give them some direction. It's, it's kind of weird. The things that, or I can't quite explain the things that draw me to someone to take their photo, mm-hmm. but whether it, whether they give me their, you know, ready pose and, and if they do, and I don't think it's any good, I'll tell them I'll, or I won't tell them it's not any good. I'll just <laughs> post them the way that I, that I like, but, uh, and I try to do it quickly. So, you know, I'll, I'll I like, getting the photos quickly and and good and if that is, if that is someone else's pose that looks good i'll take it and if not I'll, we'll try something different but i don't have the <laughs> i don't have the visceral reaction that you <laughs> that you have i mean I, I don't tend to express that visceral reaction but i definitely feel it what i love about the portraits that you do get and, and i guess there's it, it's kind of i think the vernacular is always different Americans to English. I think in, in England, I understand about three different regions. 
of English accent and then everything else just sounds like noise to me. And um, I think mm. so, some parts of the Midwest in America, it can get a little bit phonetic where you're trying to figure out what's being said based on grunts mm. and noises rather than anything else. When it comes to you're approaching people and you just said that you don't know what it is that draws you in, but you, you seem to be fantastic. And this is probably the thing that drew me in the, the most to your work. Um, you seem to be fantastic at kind of framing their environment around them. And there seems to be great context to the portraits that you take where it's not um, a lot of people that do sort of, you know, walk up and shoot style street portraits. They tend mm-hmm. to go in super, super narrow depth of field, no context. And the light might be great and everything might be wonderful, but I, I don't get a sense of story. But with your work, I definitely mm-hmm. get a little sense of just where they were at the moment you approached them and, and the, um, the environment that they're in. Um, is that a conscious decision or is that just a stylistic thing that's come kind of instinctually? Well, first, thank you for saying that. Um, that that means means a ton that you that you get that out of my photographs, and it is an intention that I have. Um, I definitely want to catch. You know, I, I think when I see someone that I want to photograph, it isn't just the person, but it, it's it's. it's <laughs> I just joked on Instagram that I have a ton of pictures of people who are sitting down, and you know, you want to have some kind of uh, mystery behind it, but it really is because if they're sitting down, they probably can't get away when I ask <laughs> to take the photo. <laughs> and, <laughs> but typically for someone who's sitting down, they'll be sitting in a certain way and the light is kind of hitting them just in a particular way where I go, this, this looks really, really, uh, really cool. I remember I took a photo of a woman who was sitting down, she was smoking a cigarette and she was on her phone. And I do not think she even spoke English, but we didn't have, but we didn't really say much because right. I went, I walked over and I said, you know, may I take your photo? And she looked and she looked at my camera and she nodded yes. And I kind of told her to, you know, put her head down a little bit and kind of just look at the camera. I snapped the photo and said, thank you. She waved. And then I was riding off on my bike and I, and I, but I said, you know, I, I wonder if she speaks any English because that was... <laughs> It was just in and out. I mean, it, it turned out to be a really, really cool photo. And it was a it was just her sitting there kind of just in her own little world. Um, it really it really uh, amazes me that the streets of New York are so public, but they are so intimate at, at the same time. Yeah, um, because there's so many there's so many different things that are, that are going on. But, you know, when you're on your phone or you're talking to someone, those are like really, you know, intimate, or at least I think they are intimate things that, that people are doing right out in public. You're having a conversation with someone and it's just, I like the juxtaposition of the idea of New York being this really busy place where people are going, going, going. You have these small little vignettes or these small moments in time where it feels really intimate. And I hope, that that is something that people are are getting out of some of the portraits that I make of people on the street. Well, something that I find um, is is going to be massively um, magnified somewhere like New York, where there are so many subcultures and so many little. You've got you know little Italy, and you've got Chinatown, and and there's all these little communities of of, of different backgrounds and different cultures. Essentially, is. And I guess this is a real ignorant question, so I do apologize, but how do you feel in terms of people from different cultures documenting each other? Because I think I feel like um, 
I've got a bit of a long play on this one, so I do apologize, but I do feel like it feels like in the last few years, we've moved more and more away from the the potential for, for people to just get on and for people to just allow each other to be who they are. And um, it does seem like every single day, and it's probably something that I would tack social media as being some form of a, a part in the problem, but we seem to be becoming more and more incapable of just getting on with each other and letting people be, so to speak. And I'm just curious, someone like myself being English, uh, I mean, I look like every Lord of the Rings character kind of mushed into one face, which is a bit depressing, (laughs) but I feel like if I was to go around New York and approach people for portraits, especially with my accent, uh, other than the laughs I would get for the accent, which is always hurtful, I would have a much lower success rate than you would. And I just wonder how, do you, do you, I mean, first of all, do you think that's the case? Do you think that people are are going to be more comfortable being photographed by people from within their own community. And, and does that necessarily lead to better or worse photos, if that's the case? Well, I definitely think people are more comfortable with someone who looks like them taking their, taking their photo, or at least from their, from their culture, taking the photo, mm-hmm. um, or making the photo, I should say. And so this is a conversation that I've had with a few of my, my friends and, and other um, photographers about documenting uh documenting black people and documenting our culture mm-hmm. and for a long time in america that was not happening like the documentation was happening but it was not by other black people it was, it was kind of you know a, a white photographer comes in spends a day with uh, martin Luther king spends a day with malcolm x or spends a day with the civil rights movement and while those images were powerful enough to kind of you know, let the world know what's going on. You see, now we look back on someone like uh, Jamel Sabraz or Gordon Parks. Yeah. It feels different how they were able to capture Black people as opposed to someone else who was coming in and and taking photos. While the photos were good, no one can deny some of the powerful images that people were able to get during that time. When you look at some of the other Black photographers who were also taking pictures at that time, it feels different. And it, it makes one wonder how different would, you know, the, how different would these causes have been if the people who were documenting, if the people who were documenting them, the black people were documenting were on the forefront of showing what was going on. Would it have moved faster? Would it have been, you know, changed how people thought about it? I, that's something that I've had conversations with friends about often. Uh, especially with documenting last year and the protests that are happening now with making sure that we as black people are the ones that are taking the photos, um, making the videos that are talking to other people in the civil rights movement, because there is, there is value in telling your own story. And it's about time that black people did that. I shouldn't even say black. It's not even, not even, uh, not even black. I think it's time that, that, that people of color, have ownership of their story. I mean, from the outside, it's um, last year was a was a lot to take in. Obviously, culturally, we're mm-hmm. we're in a we're an ocean away, quite literally, and uh, to to take in a lot of what was going on. And there was a there was a little bit of a from from my perspective, and obviously, it's one person's opinion. From my perspective, some of the way that the English reacted, there was there was some moments that just. I guess it just felt like it would trivialize things in terms of we had, you know, we had protests over here, like everyone did all over the world at the, at the time. And there was 
There was some moments that I think if you just look at with, with, uh, and you're absolutely devoid of emotion and I'm, I'm part German, so it's quite easy to be devoid of emotion. There were people in, in London chanting that Donald Trump wasn't their president. And I, I remember thinking, yeah, you're English. Like <laughs> that you're, you're just repeating a phrase that you've heard, but it doesn't feel like you right. understand necessarily what the point mm-hmm. of the people that you've heard that phrase from, like where that's coming from. It feels like a lot of people right. picked up slogans. And I personally, I, I had a couple of people get quite angry with me over, um, I, I don't know how much of a thing this was for, for you, but I saw the, you know, the black square, the blackout Tuesday, I think it's blackout Tuesday. Oh, yeah. And my, mm-hmm. my point at the time, I, I said to someone, and again, I come at things with, uh, with a painful level of a lack of emotion, but I said, you know, surely if the, the point of it is to encourage space for voices that don't often get to be heard, you're not necessarily helping the flow of information because you've done two things. One, you've taken up space regardless mm-hmm. of, of whether it being a meaningful post or it being a blackout post or whatever. And secondly, mm-hmm. anyone that opens the app that day, once they've hit four or five black squares, they're going to say, yeah, I, I'm probably just not going to cycle through the app because it's, it's just going to be the same thing over and over again. And it, it, in a lot of cases, it felt like there was there was a lot of people trying to find a way to kind of include themselves when necessarily it was perhaps a time to kind of find out some things rather than insert yourself into the situation. And obviously that's coming from my perspective. It's nowhere near as, um, as important as no one's perspective is ever as important as they think it is. With, with regards to what you brought up there and the, the people of color coverage of their own stories and so on, um, one thing I did see quite a bit of, and I'm just curious to hear your side on this or your opinion on this is, there was, there was quite a few posts that I saw requesting that white photographers or in a couple of cases, just I'm just going verbatim, that non-black photographers weren't out taking pictures of the, the protests and some of the movements. I'm just curious, do you, think that, do you think that that's necessarily like a good or a bad thing? Obviously, it's good for you know, people involved in the community to be covering their own side of things. But is limiting the, the coverage, regardless of the background of the person doing the coverage, is that necessarily a good thing? Because there's the potential, obviously, for, for something to be missed if you limit the number of cameras, although I'm sure it was never going to be missed because everyone carries a camera. Yeah, very true. Um, hmm. I, I, I'm not sure how I felt about that. I felt about that. Um, I did hear or, or I did see that. And as a as a journalist and yeah, as a journalist, my first reaction is, is kind of, I'm repelled by that only because as a journalist, when someone says, I don't want you to cover, or I don't want these them to do it, or I don't want this person to do it. It kind of makes, it, it makes me want to kind of break that rule and do it and do it anyway. Right. Um, I understand, I understand the sentiment that they didn't want people. They didn't like uh, people didn't want, non didn't want who people who were not people of color to cover it. Um, I understand the sentiment, but I don't think, no, you know what, now that I'm thinking about it out loud, I don't think that it is the, the right move. While I understand the sentiment behind it. Um, I think that when it comes to coverage and when it comes to, to the people that are highlighted in telling the story, I think that is where you need to pull the people of color. You need to pull the black people for Black Lives Matter, the black people who are documented, you need to pull them and, and elevate whatever platform they have, elevate them so that they can tell that story while you still do have 
you know, white people or whoever um, covering it. It's just, you need to make sure that the people that you're elevating are black people who are telling the story and you can have, you can have other people covering it. I just think that when it comes to crafting the story and, and telling it that it should be black people at the vanguard of, of telling it. And I think again, it goes back to the, the different approach that someone would have as a visitor to something as compared to someone that's completely immersed mm-hmm. in it. I do think that the documentation is going to be different just by the nature of human beings and their approach of things that they're comfortable with and not comfortable with. Last year, by and large, I avoided the subject of this because what I didn't want to do and, and something I definitely saw, and again, please, if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong on this, but something I did get the general impression of was that there were people that saw photo opportunities in what was going on. And it's not something I talked about at great length on the podcast because I'd rather it wasn't a, dis- a discussion about photography when it needed to be a discussion about something else. And obviously things are are still rolling and there are still things that need to be um, addressed. And every day it seems, um, I mean, from, from a European point of view, we feel very boring compared to America because you guys certainly have an active news. Yes. But uh, just... In terms of as a photographer, as a journalist, what was the experience like of, of photographing that movement last year? It was a, so, so to answer part of your question, there were definitely people there that I, uh, you know, I knew in my bones were there for the performative part of what was going on and not so much the substantive part of it. Like I definitely saw that that was there. Um, and I just, I mean, I, I don't think that was unique to last year's movement. I kind of think those kind of, uh, strange people are in any kind of thing, but I definitely saw that last year. I just tried to find a way not to really, you know, feed into, feed into some of the, the nonsense or mm-hmm. that nonsense. Um, and, and as far as, you know, it was, it was interesting to, cover it because I always thought about, you know, what was it like for photographers to cover the civil rights movement of the sixties. And I kind of think, well, while it wasn't as intense, I felt like I felt that like, this is, you know, I was wondering what I would do in those times. Now I know what I would be doing. I would be out trying to document as much as I can. And there were a few times where uh, the, some of the first rallies that I went to were intense in the, in the aspect of, you know, it was right after George Floyd was killed and what happened to him, I am a black man in America. The same thing that happened to him could have easily happened to me. Well, just, just like that. So when you're covering these, these protests, I think sometimes you need to, um, decompress even where you're there. I, I felt myself kind of being a little bit overwhelmed with emotion sometimes mm-hmm. where it was, you, you, you would see what's going on and people talking, you know, talking about their pain and talking about, you know, just, just, just a lot, just living in this country, in America as, as a person of color. And I think sometimes I would have to kind of step back a little bit, just, just so I could uh, kind of, center myself again to make sure that I can, I can document with like a clear head. Um, but it was very, especially the, the, the beginning of it was really, really intense just because it's really the, the, 
the injustices that face black people in America, it's it becomes very tiring to keep saying over and over again that, you know, police are beating the brakes off us and people are like, oh, are they really? And it's like, yes, they are. And now we have the video and people are like, oh man, I guess you guys were serious. They really, they really were. And it's like, we, we've been saying this for years, years. My, my family, my father uh, has some really interesting stories about interactions with police in the, in the sixties and seventies. So it's it, intense, tiring, frustrating, all of those different kinds of emotions is what it's like to, to cover these protests that are actually still going on. So, you know, today, as we speak, I think there are people in uh, Washington Square Park that are, that are protesting right now. Yeah, I mean, the emotional side of things is going to massively inhibit the ability to document. I mean, it's, it's one thing to become sort of a second nature photographer in the sense that you just, you take pictures naturally without having to be you know, a very conscious effort for you to think about how you're going to frame things, how you're going to, how you're going to compose and, and when the right moment is to take the picture. And when you throw in just a whole heap of emotion on top of that, it makes the whole, the whole situation incredibly difficult to even understand how to go about the approach to document it. I want to ask a question actually about from a journalistic point of view with American news, I have a rule when I come over to America, uh, me and my wife do that we don't put the news on. And I don't care if it's I don't care if it's CNN, MSNBC, Fox. Right. I, I, I don't care what it is. We don't put it on because everyone's trying to convince everyone to hate someone else. And I think that the news over there mm-hmm. is. I would definitely recommend all Americans at some point, and I don't care if they are all the way to the right, all the way to the left, somewhere in the middle, whatever they're up to, to just look at some news from other countries and just see how much more calm it is. And how much more it's about telling you something that's happened as opposed to telling you how you should feel about something that might happen mm-hmm. or, or anything like that. But from a journalistic point of view, especially being immersed in this very vitriolic news system that you have, is there a part of you that when you're photographing something like that, especially when it has so many ties to your own personal experience, that you don't want to show something that could be perceived as a negative by you know, the other side, because obviously, um, for, for the sake of the expression, um, like having a dog in the fight, so to speak, when you have, uh, when you okay. have an outcome that you, that you obviously, I think, you know, 99.99% of people, it feels like should want the, the outcome and the remaining fraction can, you know, fuck off. But when you have this, you have a, a personal interest in it. And I guess that's where the difference is when you have people from outside the community photographing, but then they also might have a an outcome that they're after that's maybe more nefarious. Do you have to be careful about what you're, you're documenting or from a journalistic point of view, are you making sure you're covering everything that you're seeing? I, I make it, I make sure that I'm covering everything I, I'm seeing. Um, while, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the idea of not showing some things and then showing others never, that has never even crossed my mind. And I think that is my training as a journalist to kind of, uh, while this is a worthwhile cause, uh, civil rights for for black people is is a righteous cause. Um, you still have to show what is happening. And when we say that we are owning our uh, story, I think part of that is I would, like we were saying earlier, I would get a different reaction from my community. In my photos, as opposed to some, as opposed to someone who's coming from outside the community taking the, the same photo. So that is one aspect of of 
you know, owning your owning the story. But I, I think when we say owning the story, it doesn't mean that we are, you know, or at least in my case, anyway, I'm not someone that is not telling the not so good parts of something so that I can burnish the image of the civil rights movement of, you know, 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, make, I make sure that, you know, I, I'm, I'm showing what's going on. And what I think was happening before when you aren't owning your, your story is that the entire story of the other side of black people was not being told where, you know, maybe they were, you know, someone who did have, who did have a, a dog in a fight who was not part of the community didn't tell the whole story of, of the other side. And what I'm trying to do is, is, you know, fill out the, the, fill out the story and, and kind of show people things that they might not have seen when it comes to um, black people in in America. Um, And, but yeah, the, the thought of not showing some things, no, that I've never been given that a thought before. The only way I would do that is, is I think some, I have not looked, there was this last, um, just a couple of days ago, um, a, a guy was shot by the police, um, in, in Brooklyn center, uh, Minnesota. And I have not looked at that video. Like the, when it comes to those kinds of things, I can't, I, I, I can't take it anymore. I can't look at another black person being killed on, on video anymore. Um, now I understand I edit that out of my life, but I don't, I'm, I don't have any interest in editing out the parts that we don't want to, you know, show people because they're not good or something like that. Well, it's a incredibly ill-advised idea, but I, I promise I have the best of intentions when I say this, that mm. I've heard the expression that a gun is something you regret uh, owning a gun is something you regret when you fire it at the wrong moment. And I feel like owning a mm. camera is something you regret when you don't fire it at the right moment. And um, I feel like in terms of like integrity and honesty with journalism, um, and I, I don't have a, a particularly good window into this world, but only from speaking to various people and, and then my own experience in life is, is the... The worry is when someone feels like something doesn't need to be documented because it doesn't tell the story that they came in with. And, and, and I think that's something that a lot of people from way too higher up in media uh, are now very good at is only, only showing things that feed into whatever idea that they want to have. And I feel like it's just taken the integrity out of every argument that's going on. And I, I wonder from, from your point of view, is it about as much coverage as possible? Is it, is it about, maybe coming home with way more photos than you, than you'd actually need, but just to make sure that, you know, f- full situations are covered as, as thoroughly as, as humanly possible. Well, I have, a, okay, good. That, that's a good question. I have a, a really good example of that, Chris. So I was, and this actually doesn't have to do with any of the black lives matter protests or anything, anything like this. It's just like a typical run of the mill story that, that I was assigned. And the story was about uh, a train here in Brooklyn that was going to stop running and with the L train and the L train every day. It's been a while since I covered the story, but I, it's something like 250,000 people go take this train to go from Brooklyn to Manhattan every day. That's a city's worth of people that it moves every single day. And, it's, and it was going to close down. 
to for for repairs. So Williamsburg is a neighborhood that was going to be greatly affected by this with shops closing shops closing down because people can't go from one place to another to get there, this and that. And the idea, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with Williamsburg, but Williamsburg has this stereotype of being kind of this place for hipsters. Like right. it's like the, the it's the cap it's the capital of hipsters. But in actuality, that's not the case. Uh, Williamsburg is a very ridiculously expensive neighborhood to live in. There's a lot of families that live there. They they built all these different tall condos and high rises and whatnot. It's while it may superficially be this hipster haven, it certainly is not. It is a place where very well-to-do upper middle class people live. A lot, a lot of upper middle class rich people live. So my boss had. Uh, the idea that it was um, hipster haven and, and, you know, a little old lady on the block is going to be glad that the hipsters are not here and this and that. And I was saying, you know, that's a great idea, but you know, unfortunately that is not what this neighborhood is. Mm-hmm. However, there's still a story here. There's still 250,000 people that won't be able to get to this, that won't be able to get to the city. So that is a story. So of course I go there and there's, and I get the story. Uh, I get the, the, the people talking about, my business won't be able to survive if I can't get the people coming from one place to another. And, you know, some people, some people's rents were dropping tremendously um, and whatnot. And so I brought that back to him. And since it wasn't the hipster angle, he almost, I mean, I had to kind of you know, force his hand with doing it, but because it didn't have this weird hipster angle that was, you know, 20 years old, he almost didn't want to do the story. So that is definitely something that is kind of baked into some of the, the, the decisions that go into the news making process. Cause you know, you go out with an idea and then while you might, while it might not be that idea, you still have something. Sometimes yeah. you get, you get a, you get a boss or you get someone who is dead set on, I want this story. And if you don't come back with that specific thing, then we can't do the story that does happen. And it's a, it's a shame because I think some stories aren't told because of someone's idea of what the story should be as opposed to what the story actually is. Yeah, I think, um, again, talking entirely as being Johnny Foreigner from the outside, what's kind of fascinating is is if you watch the news in England, it'll be, you know, one, if you turn on one channel, um, they'll be talking about news story A and this is how it negatively affects you. And if you turn it to the other channel, that's like the polar opposite, they'll still be talking about the same story, but they'll talk about how, you know, the, the effect on you is the complete opposite. So they'll, they, they won't avoid the issue, but they'll change the approach of how that, you know, how that affects the people that are watching their, their coverage. And what I find with America is if you go and you watch, I don't know, CNN or MSNBC, you get one side of things, which is like, they'll talk about news story A. And if you go and watch like, Fox, they're talking about news story B and neither mm-hmm. ever cross paths. And I, I think that it just does a great injustice because it's created a wonderful sense of kind of confirmation bias for everybody, which completely, Absolutely. completely destroys the, the conversation that could easily be had by what I'd like to think by and large is a, is a huge population of very reasonable people that just don't want to be diminished one way or the other. And I, I feel like, I feel like, uh, I think it's Charles Barkley actually said it the other day about how politicians and media are, are just doing a fantastic job of ensuring that everybody hates each other when actually there's no major desire to. And 
that that's the one thing from the outside of American American news and, and media that always kind of catches me out. Um, with you, there's 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 something that I actually need you to to explain for me here because you have two things in your profile that I don't know if they go together, and I'd love to hear for you to explain to me how they do. <laughs> which is journalism or journalist and creative. How how can you be a journalist and a creative? <laughs> Uh, that's, um, <laughs> that's really funny. Um, uh, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very hard to bring, uh, it, it's hard to bring creativity to something like an institution, like journalism, like news, because I mean, you know, news has been around since they've been writing it on the walls in ancient Rome. Like, it's something that people have been doing for, you know, a, a, a long time. And if you've been doing something for a long time, people don't want to, to necessarily change how they are doing it. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's difficult, but it nonetheless can, can happen. If, if I can bore you one more time with another very quick story, please say. uh, and, and just talking about, creativity and whatnot. So you may have heard of this phone. It's called uh, the iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, yeah. It changed, it changed the way we, we, we interacted with our phone. So when the iPhone first came out, I was talking to uh, someone at a boss at the time about, we should do an entire story that is recorded on the iPhone. Like we'll get all of our, we'll get all of our interviews from the iPhone We'll do all of our B-roll the whole night. It should be all from the iPhone. And her first reaction to that was nobody wants to watch. Why would you do something? So, so no, like it was just an almost visceral, like, no, no one wants to see iPhone video. And of course, fast forward 15 years. And that is all that people are shooting everything on. They're doing entire, entire movies have been produced on, on iPhones. That just shows you that it's very hard to be creative and also be uh, a journalist at the same time, but it's a, it's a fight nonetheless. Are you using one to offset the other? So like for me, for mm-hmm. me, I use when I'm kind of run down, I mean, not that I've had the, the pleasure of being run down from anything for a year, but if I'm run down from kind of over, overdoing it with weddings, I can use the portrait side of things to kind of, to kind of, you know, stretch mm-hmm. out my creativity or, if I'm getting bored with doing, you know, headshot session upon headshot, headshot session, I can, you know, focus on something entirely different with the weddings and it just kind of keeps me fresh and keeps me interested. Is that how you approach the two? It is. It, it really is. Um, my, my partner would tell me sometimes like, you know, you need to, you need to get out and go for a walk and go take some photos. Just, just because sometimes I think she could tell that, you know, the, the journalist part, you know, the work that I was doing was just, was was grinding me down so much that I needed and I and I wasn't able to have that creative outlet that she would she would like either push me like you know just why don't you just go for a walk why don't you just yeah go outside and get that creativity going so at least you'll be in a better headspace when you have to go back to doing the things that will keep the lights on you know what I mean yeah you mentioned at the start um about walking around with a disposable camera and mm-hmm. uh, I feel like First of all, I don't generally talk about gear on the podcast because I think there's enough podcasts out there that are trying to sell you some shit that you don't need. Um, I don't want to join that queue. But um, to start off on a disposable camera, obviously you're talking about something that's completely featureless essentially. And 
and it's um, mm-hmm. it's very redundant in what it does. It's it's very straightforward. There's no there's no um, bells and whistles, so to speak. And it feels like now we're getting to a point where people feel if a camera can't shoot video in 8K and take 30 pictures a second, <laughs> all of a sudden it's it's like a paperweight. It can't be used as a camera. I feel like um, right. maybe photographers in the current age would love to have a sit down chat with photographers from you know, the 50s, 60s and 70s about how hard it is to be a photographer now. And then maybe they'd get a better understanding of the perspective of how easy it is these days, um, especially at lower and lower prices. I would imagine for what you're doing, especially with, with regards to journalism, there's, or journalistic photography, there's, there's a need to have a camera that's not too intrusive, that's going to kind of um, sour the people around you that you're there to take photos and people become too aware and then they start acting unnaturally. What is it that you're using camera wise and and is the the sort of the aesthetics of a camera important? Hmm. So I use uh, I shot some of the protests with my Nikon uh, uh, FN uh, FM, excuse me. Um, I shot using my Yashica um, as a twin lens reflex camera. It's a very um, peculiar looking uh, film camera. Yep. Uh, and then I also used, and this is insane, but I have a uh, Fuji GW693, which is a medium format camera that gives you these ginormous six by nine uh, negatives. Um, and all three of those cameras are extremely different from each other. And they give extremely different kinds of uh, feels to, to what's going on. Um, when it comes to being um when it comes to being being there and not and, and trying to blend in i feel that at these protests that the camera doesn't necessarily give you away it's kind of how you're approaching the subjects that might kind of intrude on on people a little bit um i think we are culturally we are aware that when we're at something like a protest that our cameras around so I don't think people are necessarily too too bothered by it, even though even though this year or last year I should say that uh, there was some effort to not show people's faces who didn't want their faces to be shown. Um, but I think it matters much more in how you approach the subjects when you're taking a photo as opposed to the camera that you have, and whether it makes noise or whether it's big or clunky or anything like that. Um, because my the Fuji that I have the Fuji GW 693 with a name uh, that is a, that has a very uh, clunky shutter. Like it, it sounds like a, like a kerplack, like it's a very, it's very clunky sounding. And I've been able to get really uh, cool shots with it and getting close to subjects and them not minding it at all. So I really think it, it matters a little bit more in how, and how you are doing it, but that might not be a hundred percent true because when you listen to Pete Souza, who was the photographer for the for uh, President Obama, he talked about having to be super quiet when he was doing it and, and would have a silent shutter. I think the stakes are a little bit different when he's taking a picture of, of you know, Obama ordering the strike that killed Osama bin Laden and me taking pictures on the streets here in New York. Um, so I think for something like for something like him, maybe it might be a little bit more important before what for what I do. I think it it matters more in how you are approaching your subjects as opposed to the clunky camera that you have. 
one thing that jumps out there obviously is the fact that you're shooting on film and mm-hmm. I would, I would, and, and uh, please do accept my apologies for this. This is how we, English people do confrontation. We apologize and then we do the <laughs> confrontation. <laughs> I disagree with you about the importance of the photos or the, or the weight behind the photo, because I feel like if you're photographing something of such historical significance, then, you know, a lot of consideration has to go into it one way or the other. I, I think way too much, uh, way too much has been uh, risked over the last year to to kind of pass it off the way that you just did. So I'm I'm giving you a lot more credit than you're giving yourself. Oh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. But on film, like, is there not just the terror <laughs> of of any kind of camera issues or any kind of issues with the film? You know, any kind of accidentally opened backs or anything like that. I know you're obviously going to be comfortable with film having started there, but is there no fear, especially when digital is so readily available? <laughs> uh, there is, there is fear all the time. All every single time there's, there's fear and the fear is justified because there have been times where I <laughs> have taken photos and they come out <laughs> blank. Uh, I had, I was doing my developing myself for my color film for a while until I, I was developing some roles in it and the chemicals were dead. But I didn't know that until I went to go develop the film and saw that the, all of my photos were blank. And so that's when I stopped doing, I, I couldn't, my heart could not take developing <laughs> the stuff myself and it, be, and, it, and it being ruined. Like I just, it just was way, the stakes were way too high. I couldn't do that anymore. So I sent my color film out um, and I don't actually shoot. I've been shooting more color film lately, but it, for the protests, I was shooting a lot of black and white and it's living on the edge, man. It's, it's definitely a little scary when I say not scary. It's you're like anticipating, like, did they come out? How good do they do? They, I was trying to be positive with like, you know, did they come out really good or did they come out really great and trying not to think about if they came out blank or something like that. Yeah. If um, I could jump in there though, really quickly, you, you mentioned that for, for the protest shooting in black and white. That's something that I saw almost universally. And I was curious as to how that, I'm assuming it's not a collective decision. I'm just curious as to how that's come about. Is that something to do with like the aesthetic of what was happening in the 60s? Is that because it's more in keeping with, I, I don't know, I, why, why was black and white so prominent? Uh, for me, I shot black and white because logistically, I could I could develop at home. I could scan it. it was very it was simple to do. Um, okay, okay. And it's a little bit and it's a little bit more versatile. Um, you can push it and pull it in different ways that you can't really do with uh, with color film. Now, now you were seeing black and white. Was that black and white digital? Was that also black and white film as well? Bit of everything. Everything I saw shot film was black and white. I, I mean, I can't think of a single person or a single shot that I saw that was film and it was color. And uh, mm. I know many photographers that were out photographing and in all honesty, a lot of them are black and white shooters anyway, but I don't remember seeing even color digital stuff other than literally stuff that was in newspapers, which obviously is taken by people that are there, but it just felt like right. people like yourself, p- people that in, in all of these cities where this was happening, it seemed to be almost like a, a strange telekinetic decision to, to go with black and white and obviously logistically that that answers a lot of questions that does make complete sense yeah i mean it's just black and white is just so much 
it's so much easier and it's less fuss than 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 color and more versatile especially when you're doing things at night and you're doing things where the light isn't that great it's really versatile in that way now i've noticed if i if i always see instagram feeds if you go to someone's profile it's almost like an archaeological dig in a lot of cases, unless you're you're dealing with someone like me who psychotically deletes stuff the minute I'm having a half bad day. Um, and by by having a bit of an archaeological dig on you, I'd notice that there's sort of sways of black and white. So it's kind of black and white and then color, black and white and then color in terms of like phases rather than image to image. So do you move in and out of of black and white being a preference or is that just literally something that I'm reading way too far into? No, you're not. So shooting in black and white, or at least posting images in black and white on Instagram was a four-year project that I, I mean, and I say project in air quotes, uh, it was a four-year project that I was doing. And it, it coincided with the election of Donald Trump. And it was this whole idea that, you know, that, that he is, he represents, and I say this as part of, <laughs> I say this as part of the journalistic community. But what I'm saying, or at least I think what I'm saying is something that is objectionably true, is that he's a mean spirited kind of person that that uh, when he was elected, I I felt like, man, this this is well, it wasn't surprising that America would, would elect someone as as awful as a person as he is. Uh. I, I thought, you know what, the, the world kind of is taking a little bit of the color, the, the things that make the world kind of bright, colorful and cheery have been taken away a little bit. And so for the next four years, I would only post black and white images on with the exception of a couple uh, a couple of times. Um, I would only post black and white images just as this kind of esoteric protest is not the right word, but but this this acknowledgement that. Uh, this country, and I, I should say we, because I am a part of this country, we elected somebody who was so mean, mean, what's the heck, mean to bones. And I don't think that that is the kind of energy that I want to project. So the election of him kind of took the color away from 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 life a little bit. So that's why there's a large swarm of my feed that is black and white, and those are the those are the Donald Trump years. <laughs> and now I go back and forth with black and white as I choose. Just kind of, it looks cool. Or if I shot black and white film, I'll post a black and white image. Well, wedding photography, the, the trick I'm often told, although I don't actually work in this way, but especially England, we're not blessed with, you know, like a sun or summer or right, anything like right. that. Yeah. But there tends to be that if you have horrendous mixed lighting, that's when you're going for the black and white. And <laughs> I, I've, I've personally never worked that way, but that does seem to be the argument. Well, you know what? Uh, uh, Chris uh, Chris Nolan shot his first movie. Yes, yes he did. Black yeah. and white because because of that. Because it's like, well, you know, I have to, I don't have the color. I don't have to do anything about the color. I can just shoot it in black and white. Yeah, well, he's he understands the pain of of residing on this island. Okay, so let me ask you a question, and and if you could give me some advice here as someone that tries to photograph things with narrative in mind, and I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that that want to incorporate more context and more narrative in what they're photographing. Any tips for that? Any tips for, uh, you know, rather than sucking something out of a scene and just taking what is aesthetically a perfectly fine photograph, do you have any tips for how to incorporate more of the story into the image? I would say if you are trying, yeah, if you're you're trying to add a little more narrative in it, um, I would think of 
um, you know, ask the person. Sometimes I, I talk to the people that I, that I take photos of and they'll tell me, you know, why they are, why, why they are in the spot they are at the moment I'm taking a photo. Um, there was one gentleman, I took a picture of him and he was sitting on a fire hydrant or like a fire, some kind of water stand or something. And he had his dog with him and he was on his phone and I had to take his photo and I, and I snapped it, but he was saying that he was, He's from New York, but he he moved upstate when Corona the coronavirus happened, but was back because his uh, a friend of his had passed. And I think it may have been like the year anniversary of it or, or something. To, I'm actually kind of forgetting a little bit of it, but just talking to him about why just talking to him about why he was sitting there, that kind of adds a little bit of a story to it. And it informed my photograph a little bit. Like once he told me that, you know, I framed it a little bit differently. Um, I don't think I wanted to have his dog in it initially, but then once he told me that I, I went, you know, let me have, let me pull back on him a little bit and show him with his dog and kind of show him with his phone as well. And, and kind of just get that like small moment of, of this person kind of, uh, I think he was like walking, rewalking some of the places that his friend had been to and things like that. So I think talking to your subjects is a really good, if you can, um, really good uh, way to to kind of add a little bit of a narrative. And like you were saying before, I try to put uh, the environment that they're in and, and make that part of the story as well. I feel like the things that are behind people or around them, where they decided to sit down, where they decided to lean up against a pole, that kind of tells a little bit about about them and, and about why I decided to take that photo. It's, it's funny because lens choice is something that when it comes up in, you know, in the, the wonderful university that is YouTube, or if it comes up between photographers generally, especially coming from a portrait side of things, people tend to pick lenses based on distortion and, and flattery, I guess, in like how, how pleasing is it to the, to the features of the person that you're photographing. And, and actually, I, I've always said that coming at it from a wedding point of view, and, and I think that there are some links there between sort of street photography, journalism, weddings it's all it's all documentation of something and i think in a lot of cases it's as much as possible trying not to be intrusive on what you're documenting that actually the wider you go you're dealing with more context and that's how you should be making your decision not based on flattery but basing it off of off of context and actually something you brought up there about how you you changed the way that you framed something puts me in mind of i believe it was canon australia a few years ago they did something of a, a, I guess, a publicity experiment, which was they had, I think it was six photographers photographed the same man, but they told each one of the photographers a completely different backstory to the man. So to one person, he was a, a self-made billionaire. To the next person, he had recently got out of prison for something. You know, to the next person, he was, he was this and he was that. And they then showed the photos and, and the, the differences in way people framed the same person in the same environment, but just through composition based on what backstory they'd have. And is, is that something that you, you train yourself to actually, to be able to say, okay, well, this person comes from this background, so I'm going to shoot it in, in this style. You know, I'm going to crack out a 24 mil lens as opposed to the 35. Does it make any decisions for you based on hearing something about that person or knowing something about that person or wanting to project something about that person that you are consciously like, oh, okay, this guy's come from this background, he's doing this, this is what we're trying to portray, therefore 
I know that this is my default to do that? Or is that something that you think comes instinctually? I think it comes a little bit more uh, instinctually. And I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, doing things with one hand behind my back because the cameras that I mentioned, with the exception of the Nikon, they're all fixed lenses. So I only have one, when I go out, I have this one lens that I'm going out to shoot with. Uh, the the uh, Fuji is a 90 millimeter lens. And I think it, it's like the equivalent, the medium format equivalent of maybe like 44 millimeters. And then the uh, Yashica uh, D that I shoot with is also 90 millimeters. And that one for that camera, I think it comes out to be a 50 millimeter. And so there there isn't much lens choice that there isn't any lens choice that I have. And so it's a matter of, of getting closer to the subject, which then I think, um, informs when you, it's something really interesting about getting close to somebody to take a, to take a photo Mm -hmm. and what kind of story that takes as opposed to, you know, moving back a little bit. But I do think that it is a mix of, instinct and also talking to the person because sometimes I don't like, uh, like the woman who, who had a cigarette in her hand that was sitting down. I didn't say much to her except for, can I take your photo and kind of just got her in her element, uh, as opposed to the, the other gentleman with his, uh, with his dog, someone I did talk to, I was able to get to capture, uh, two different kinds of, um, stories, one in which I, I talked to the person and the other in which I didn't. And I still think the photos came out with the same intention. So right. I think it, it's, 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 the, it's a matter of kind of doing both things. Sometimes you can talk to somebody and you can kind of figure a little, a little bit out about them and kind of frame it that way. And other times you have to kind of put what, what you saw and frame it as opposed to, you know, what the person has been telling you about themselves. I hope that makes, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Totally. We started this with, with New York being a bit of an emphasis to start off with. So let's end it with, with geography in, in a similar sense. If I could, you know, in a kind of bizarre way when there's all these flight restrictions and other issues, but in a general sense, if I could pick you up and drop you anywhere in the world with your cameras, where would you want to be dropped? So this is a hard question, but then an easy one at the same time. So I would go to a city in Sicily. Uh, I mean, I, I was in Shuffalo a few years back and I didn't take as many photos as I would have liked to, but the people there, like we went to some of the, all of the other like little smaller towns, actually maybe anywhere in Italy. Um, the, the places where uh, tourists aren't really at, where, you know, they're ruins or, you know, it's really small towns. Um, those are incredibly charming. They have really cool history behind them. And it was a pleasure to, to make photos of some of the, uh, some of the people there. Um, and the, the place, the city I'm, I'm thinking of was actually not in Sicily. Um, it was like actually right outside of maybe like an hour train ride outside of Rome, but it was occupied I mean, just like all of Italy and uh, during World War II. And they had this, they just had a really cool story. Or I don't know if cool is the right word, but it had a story, <laughs> a story about how important wine is to, to the town. And yeah. even these even these people who were held 
prisoner or, or yeah, held prisoner by the Nazis, they were still, you know, passing wine to each other in all kinds of weird and peculiar ways and whatnot. And I ran into a handyman of the, of the neighborhood. He was kind of the go-to person if you needed something fixed, but he, it wasn't necessarily, he had the business, but he was really just the neighborhood handyman. And I speak very little um, Italian enough to, I, I can't even, I speak very little Italian, but enough that I could communicate that I wanted to make his uh, photo. And he was so um, happy. And so just, he was just ecstatic that somebody that would, would want to take his photo. And especially I had this Yashika camera that has the twin lens reflex, you know, it's the two lenses on the front and it's this weird looking camera. And I remember taking his photo and even in his, his broken English and my broken Italian, he was just so happy that I was, that I was making it. And I made it with him holding his, I think he's like holding something in one hand. He's got this tools in the back. And I feel like it just captured what he meant to that neighborhood as the neighborhood handyman. So I would love to go back to some of these small towns in Italy and just kind of document what's going on there, especially because a lot of them are, are dying out. Honestly, wasn't expecting Italy. So that's that's awesome. <laughs> Honestly, every time I speak to Americans, they bring up Asia. They always want to go to Japan really? or China. Yeah, always. It's very strange. I'm not strange in the sense of wanting to go there, but it's very strange that um, you very rarely hear Americans that want to come to Europe. So yeah, that's that's pretty cool. No, I, I, one of these days, I'll call Europe home, hopefully. We'll see about that. Oh, that sounds that sounds fantastic. Like you've, you've been so generous <laughs> with your time. Um, I really do appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us. Most important part of this is that we now nudge everybody in the direction of where they can find uh, your photography. So if you want to just tell people where they can go, um, websites, Instagram, anywhere that your photos are that you want people to go to. Sure. So you can go to my website, Naeem Douglas, N-A-E-E-M-D-O-U-G-L-A-S.com. Uh, you can also check out my photography, the same name, Naeem Douglas, uh, or at Naeem Douglas underscore on Instagram. And yeah, those are the, those are the places that you can, uh, you can see my work. And, uh, I have a few things, you know, in the, in the, in the back here that I'm working on that I hopefully can, can release to the masses <laughs> as big or as small as they are pretty soon. Looking forward to it. And again, really massive thanks for taking the time to do this. Um, and for, for sharing so much. That's my pleasure.